the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 950 WTLN. This is your hour when Orlando Magic Senior Vice President Pat Williams sits down and speaks with authors who have written books on topics of interest and insight for listeners like you. And now, here's your host, Pat Williams. Welcome once again to the Pat Williams Saturday Evening Power Hour. It's AM 950 WTLN in Orlando. Uh, we always look forward to these visits and are grateful that you tune in with us. Uh, Jeff Sennis engineers our show every weekend. Andrew Herdliska produces it. And Robert Benson is going to join us here in the first half hour from Nashville. Uh, his new book is out, Dancing on the Head of a Pen. The Practice of a Writing Life, Water Book, the publisher. And, Robert, I would bet uh, that every other person in America wants to write a book. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and we're going we're gonna to talk about it. So thanks for joining me. Oh, I'm glad to be included. I'm glad to talk to you, Pat. Do you, do you agree that every other person in America has a, feels that they have a book in them? Yes. Um, I think every time I meet anyone for the first time, and then people I know even as well, but Everyone I meet for the first time, immediately upon discovering that I'm a writer, begins to tell me about the books they have in their head that they want to write. And uh, <laughs> so we have a there's a kind of joke in the publishing business, um, which is everybody wants to be an author, but nobody wants to write a book. And so, so I'm yes, I'm yes. I think everyone has a, and I do believe everyone has a story um, that they're trying that they would love to tell. And they assume that perhaps maybe making a book is the way to do that. But I'm not sure that's always the case. Robert Benson is with us. Twelve interesting topics or chapters in this nice little book, which I read in, uh, well, probably a sitting and a half and enjoyed it immensely. All right, let's start with this one, Robert. Dark marks on a page on a book about making a book. <laughs> that That's how you start. Talk Talk to us about that. I spent my entire life, I, I was first, the first time I saw my name in print, underneath something I had written. I was 13 years old. Mm. And Mr. Updike's quote, uh, which includes dark marks on the page, that's his phrase, not mine. Um, but I I think I've spent my entire life fascinated by, uh, caught up in emotionally and spiritually and philosophically. I have spent my life, I was raised in a printing and music publishing family until I have Ink and I have ink in my blood, and I have I've spent my life around paper and those dark marks on a page, and and I that's always been a fascinating thing to me, and I I grew up wanting to be one to be a person who got to do that. Um, so it's just it that that whole notion of dark marks on a page really um, really speaks to the heart of why I love it. I think I just fell in love with it from the very beginning. Were you a reader as a youngster? I was yes. My you probably remember I, a fair number of the people in in the audience listening today will not remember this. But we, I was in the SRA reading program when I was in school, when I was in elementary school, and I was actually a bluebird, which was the top group. So yes, I'm a I'm a bluebird reader from way back, and um, yeah, I read all the time, and I was very fortunate when I was in my in my high school years. My, there were five children in my in my family in my high school years. I got to move because we were running out of room upstairs. I got to move to my father's uh, study downstairs to sleep in, and so I started reading his books late at night when I was not the, just the books he wrote, but but I read uh, serious authors from the time I was about eleven or twelve. So, yeah. Second topic, Robert. Robert Benson is with us from Nashville. You say, follow your nose on deciding what to write. I think very often people who are beginning to write, um, partly because of their, partly because of what they think is the right thing to do, and partly because of the information they get from people who supposedly know how to, 
uh, know the things to know to tell them how to get published. People worry too much about whether or not something will sell or be interesting to other people or be picked up by a publisher or find any audience at all. And I think you have to write the story that is calling you, that's drawing you, and not worry in the beginning. If you worry too much about whether or not anybody else is going to buy it, be it publisher or audience or whatever, um, then you probably run the risk of cutting cutting off your story before you even tell it because you're worried about making it something that will become a bestseller, which you and I both know happens to 1% of the books on the planet. So. Mm-hmm. Now you tell us, the ne- next topic, go to your room on the discipline of being a writer. I Every time I talk, to, I get a chance. I've, I've been at this so long now. You know, I end up getting a chance to talk to, to a lot of young writers or would-be writers, and and people say to me, uh, do you think I have a book of me? I say, I don't know. Go to your room and write it. I mean, <laughs> shut up and write. I mean, <laughs> no one knows. I mean, it sounds like an interesting idea. Or it doesn't sound like an interesting idea. Or I don't know if it can get published or whatever. No one knows until you write the blame thing. And the only way to write the blame thing is go to your room and write. Hmm. Stop talking about writing and write. If you would rather talk about this, then great, talk about it. If you actually want to make a book, then you have to go to your room. And you have to write, and you have to do that every day. Not not so much because it makes you a better writer, although it does, but mostly because if you don't do this every day, it will never finish. And if it's never finished, no one knows if anyone will ever read it. The first part is to get it on paper in the first place. And most people, uh, a lot of people, um, are unwilling. Well, you know, you've been around sports. Are unwilling to do the work that nobody sees. Mm. Sit in your room and write. I mean, you have to do it every day. That's the way... You don't get stronger just because you say you want to get stronger or faster. You you become a better writer and you finish a story because you do the work every day. And it's it's like digging a ditch for Pete's sake. It ain't, it ain't magic every day. It's every part of the expression. It ain't magic every day. <laughs> it's, it's it's getting your shovel, putting your boots on, and digging a little more in the ditch every day. And that leads directly, uh, Robert, to the next topic: six hundred words. On writing every day. <laughs> I, one of my teachers and mentors, although he would never have known it, but I never met him, was a writer named Graham Greene. He was a British novelist, a very well-known British novelist, who published 60 books in his life. And he wrote 600 words a day. Uh, he carried his notebooks with him wherever he was. He picked the time every day and sat down and wrote 600 words. At the end of six, uh, if you write 600 words a day, six days a week, at the end of eight months, You've got about 50,000 words, which is enough to make a book out of, which takes a lot of editing and rewrites and fights with your editor and on and on and on. However, you've got something to work with. So I just, I figured if it was good enough for Graham Greene, it was good enough for me, so that's what I write. I have other friends who write, I can only I can only go about two or two and a half hours a day, and then I'm writing new things, and then I'm, I'm toast. I get, my brain won't work anymore. But other people I know, they set a mark of, X number of pages or X number of uh, words, and when you get there, you stop simply and say, that was a good day's work. I'll come back tomorrow and do another good day's work. And um, I quit in the middle of a sentence or mm. in the middle of a paragraph. I never quit at the end of a chapter because I'm afraid if I come back the next day, I don't know what I'm supposed to do next. But if I quit in the middle of a sentence, then I know what comes next. So I don't have trouble getting started in the morning. But at six, <laughs> at six hundred words, yeah, that's amazing. Your brain just fries. Is... My, yeah, roughly. Yeah, it takes me about. I don't know which came first, the two and a half hour limit or the six hundred word limit, but um, somewhere in there, I write in. I write in a little Moleskine notebook with a fountain pen, and six pages in one of those little notebooks is six hundred words. So I number the page when I sit down to write in the morning. I number the next six pages and. And scribble it when I get to the end of the numbers that I've finished for the day. Mm. Um, but it keeps me, I mean, you know, it's, it's like anything else, whether it be, it's just like any other art, whether it be a sport or whatever. You, you, you do it on a disciplined, regular basis, and over time, um, you get better at it. And uh, if you write five days a week, 600 yeah. words, that's 3,000 words a week. Yeah. Good. That's good. 
Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I try to get to about forty or 50,000 words before. I usually, I, I've been, I've published 20 books, and so I've been, having done this for a while, I, I have a sense of how long the things that I'm going to make are going to be and that sort of stuff. And so I, so yeah, I kind of, um, 10 weeks, 30,000 words. So if you get another five weeks, so I'll do about 50,000 words. And that's about right for me to put it in a box and let it sit for a couple of months and then see if I've actually made anything with it. Robert Benson is our guest. We've got more with Robert on the Pat Williams Saturday Evening Power Hour. It's AM 950 WTLN in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on the new 950 WTLN. I'm Pastor Randall James, and it's my honor to support my dear friend, Attorney Patricia Strobridge, or Circuit Judge of the Ninth Circuit. Group 32. I had a memorable relationship with her late husband, the Honorable Judge Bob Waddles, and I adore their children. As a wonderful wife and mother, Patricia Strobridge found time to serve as director of a nonprofit adoption agency and as a successful trial and appellate attorney. Patricia Strobridge is the only attorney in her race recognized as a board-certified expert by the Florida Bar Association, board-certified in two different areas of law. I have witnessed Patricia Strobridge's toughness, fairness, and compassion where appropriate. Patricia Strobridge has shown herself to be worthy of our expectations and deserving of our vote on August 26th. Nonpartisan election political advertisement paid for by committee to elect Patricia Strobridge, Circuit Judge Group 32. Hello, everybody. Alan Thicke here. You know, our nation's tax laws change every year. The one constant is you have to pay them. Now, if you're one of those millions of Americans who owes back taxes, you know that the IRS is cracking down. They can garnish your paycheck, levy your bank accounts, even your home or business could be up for grabs. But here's the good news. They're offering a new way out. It's called the Fresh Start Initiative, a government program for tax debt forgiveness. You could qualify for a settlement that's substantially less than before these changes. And nobody knows this program better than the experts at Optima Tax Relief. Their attorneys and enrolled agents will work to get you the best deal possible. Optima Tax Relief is accredited by the Better Business Bureau. Call them now for a free consultation. Call 800-711-5743. That's 800-711-5743. 800-711-5743. Some restrictions apply. For complete details, please visit OptimaTaxRelief.com. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 950 WTLN. And now, here's Pat. I hope you're enjoying our visit with Robert Benson, uh, whose book is out, Dancing on the Head of a Pen, The Practice of a Writing Life. Robert, we have now moved to the topic called the jury box on choosing an audience. How do you do that? I'm never able, an audience is a large kind of amorphous body. I don't know what that is. I have an audience, but it's a large, it's a large thing. I can never get my head around it. So when I, I learned something from Doris Betts, the um, Southern novelist, she said that she writes to a jury box and she literally sits down and makes these little squares and writes the names of people into 12 chairs. And those are the people that she writes to so that when she's writing, she is seeing them, hearing them, being with them. She knows who they are. She knows what will make them laugh. She knows what they're interested in. She knows why the subject matter matters to them. And so I've been doing the same thing now for for a long time. Um, I do. It, it's a really uh, funny-looking little thing if you ever saw one. But I actually take a piece of graph paper and make a chart with a dozen people in it, and I write the book to them. And I post it on the wall in front of my writing board or in the front of the notebook where I'm working so that I keep an eye on them and they keep an eye on me so that I tell the truth and try to be honest about what I'm making for them. Because it really matters to me that those people um, enjoy the book. And if they do, then there will be other people behind that. But if I can't make these particular people happy about this, then I'm not making anything worth reading anyway. Next discussion point, speed, speed kills, you tell us, Robert, on place, time, and tools. Why does speed kill here? Um, one of the re- 
Um, you may have noticed, you read a lot of stuff, I know you do, um, and some stuff is well-written and some stuff is not, and generally speaking, the stuff that's not well-written is not well-written because it was written fast, and it was written fast simply because you can. Um, when I started, I, I learned to write as an advertising copywriter, and I wrote by longhand, and I'd write, and I'd write a piece one day, and then the next day, Somebody would type it up, and then the next day I'd get it back, and I'd edit it some, and the next day it would go to the client, and the next day, you know, it would take, uh, to deliver a 1,500-word piece for an advertisement would take maybe six or seven days, which wasn't a waste of time because we were thinking about it the whole time, and it was getting better in the back of my head the whole time. When I finally finished up in the advertising business, you literally wrote 1,500 words in the, in the morning. It was approved by the client at noon. It was at the designers who put it in the computer at 2 o'clock, and it was in print by 6 o'clock. Mm. Well, it only got faster. It did not get better. It got faster. And I think sometimes that we need to be careful, those of us who want to write, need to be careful about the fact that there are tools that will allow us to go really, really fast. That doesn't mean we should go really, really fast. Just because you have a car that will go 140 miles an hour doesn't mean you ought to be going 140 miles an hour. Just because you can bang on a keyboard at 100 words a minute doesn't mean that's the way to write. It just means that's the way to type, and typing and writing are not the same thing. You, you, I, I, again, I, I apologize. I've known you from your Orlando Magic days and stuff, so, and I'm a huge fan of basketball and baseball and everything else. But you know how athletes talk about the game slowing down? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's right. When it slows down, they're better at it. Yeah. Whether it's baseball or football or basketball, and it's the same way with writing. When the game slows down, when the ball gets big, Annie Dillard talks about um, seeing the ball, when the ball gets big, the same way of, she talks about writing, about seeing the ball getting big, seeing the ball bigger, the same way that, that Major League Baseball players do. And that's because it slows down. And when you slow down, you make better sentences. And if you make better sentences, you tell better stories. Mm. And people hear you more clearly, which was the object of telling your story. Robert Benson is with us from Nashville. His book is called Dancing on the Head of a Pen, The Practice of a Writing Life. Waterbrook is the publisher. Now I want you to talk about hat tricks, Robert, on (laughs) on recognizing the task at hand. I actually wear, and I I actually keep three hats in my studio. I wear wear them from time to time. The first one is a beret. (laughs) <laughs> so that when I'm using my fountain pen and my little notebooks and I'm sitting at the cafe where I write and I actually sit at a cafe and write on the porch every day um, and drink espresso and the whole thing. And he actually looks like a writer for about two hours a day. Um, <laughs> but when I'm wearing that hat, whether physically or philosophically, I know that what I'm doing is making new stuff. And when I'm making new stuff, I never look back. I never criticize it. I never edit it as I go. I never try to fix yesterday's stuff. I just am writing. I'm following my nose as close as I can all the way to the end of this thing. The second hat that I have is um, an old, it's an old gamer. It's a New York Yankees hat. I'm a Yankees fan. <laughs> and I'm an honest Yankees fan. We could talk about that. But at any rate, I, I'm an honest Yankees fan. And I... Um, so I put it, I have an old hat that I put on backwards when it's time to rewrite. Because when you, when you get ready to rewrite, you realize, or you should realize, that most of the 50,000 words that you wrote, um, some of it's pretty good, but probably 15 to 20,000 of them have to be butchered away. They've got to be rewritten. They've got to be cut out. This story has to go away. That's for another book. This has to be somewhere. So I, my gamer I put on when I'm rewriting and editing because it's bloody work. I mean, you're throwing away things that you thought you loved. Um, you thought the guy in the beret really uh, loved, and it turns out it was no good anyway, so you got to cut it out. And the last hat is is a fedora that I wear. i got this kind of Indiana Jones look because part of the business of being a writer is the business of being a writer. And so you have to, you, you got to hit deadlines, and you got to negotiate contracts, and you got to... Um, work out marketing things. And it, the guy in the beret is no good at that part. <laughs> but the guy in the fedora is no good at the beret part because he's always saying, nobody's going to read this. you got to fix this. And, and he talks the beret guy out of the story before the story is done. And so it, it helps me. I know how dumb it sounds, but it helps me to 
kind of see. I don't actually wear all three hats every day anymore. I've gotten used to it by now. But I think it helps. If you start out to write your story and you're worried about whether or not you can sell it to a publisher, then you have to tell the guy in the fedora to go away until you have it written. Then the guy in the fedora can come and sell the book. So. That's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. We'll have to send you an Orlando Magic hat, Robert, and see, mm. see if that'll spice that, up your writing. That would be great. That would be great. Now let's get to the eighth topic, under the influence on reading to write. I'm, I'm eager to hear about this. I think that, um, I think for, probably for most of us, there are one or two or three or four writers at most who really quicken our spirit and touch our hearts and open up our minds and somehow help us tap into the artist that is in us that we would like to use to tell our story. Those people that speak to you the clearest, whether they're, I mean, I read most of the dead people, but I, but, um, but those people who speak to you in the clearest kind of voice, it has the kind of voice that you think you would like to be able to sit on the shelf with, then those are the people who will influence you in ways that will make you a better writer. A lot of what we read, and I think this is particularly true, frankly, in, in, in the Christian publishing world, at, at which I've been in my entire life, I think this is especially true in the Christian world. We are so, we get so caught up in the moment and what's currently being talked about. We read so much stuff. I mean, I mean I'm just guessing. I mean, I'm, I'm obviously I'm embellishing here. Ten new Bible studies on the Gospel of John were published this week. You can only read so many of those. Mm. I mean, either you know it or you don't. If you've studied or you don't. If you read Stephen Mitchell's translation called The Gospel According to Jesus, you go, oh, there he is. Well, that's what happens to me, so I read it over and over. I don't need to read the other 30 to find out what's current. What I need to do is to pay attention to the stuff that creates some desire, some longing, some artistic movement within me, and only read that. Um, I, I think we... I think we who would write are susceptible to the temptation of reading everything so that when we write, we will make sure we cover everything when we write. And we're not supposed to cover everything. We're supposed to tell our story. And what we need to read are the things that will help us and encourage us to do that. Working in the cages on habits to keep a writer sharp. What do you tell us here? Working in the cages, I mean, the notion of it, the metaphor comes from watching baseball players um, take batting practice, um, which, and batting practice actually big, begins down in the building, um, underneath the building in cages and hallways, <laughs> strange little rooms where they do soft toss and they hit off a tee and they, you know, they all kinds of dumb stuff before you actually ever get onto the field to play. What happens is you have to keep honing your craft. And I believe that um, if you have the talent to write, if you have a gift to be able to put a story on paper, then part of your responsibility is not only to put the story on the paper, but to get better at it. And the way to get better at it is to write every day, read only the good stuff that moves you, um, stop, stop hurrying, uh, make sure you know what hat you've got on, I think you have to work at the craft a lot, and this and this happens this happens everywhere where people write books, but it also is particularly prevalent in the in the religious publishing world because people like to write when they're inspired, which happens to you about two days a year, frankly. If you're a professional writer, you're inspired two to three days a year if you're lucky, mm. and to ask for more than that is greedy for Pete's sake. Um, the one who made us has other things to worry about than whether or not I have an idea today. And and so you have to keep honing your craft. You have to keep working every day, knowing that, um, if you're a Christian like I am, knowing that God has given you this gift, um, he's blessed you with the opportunity to do it, blessed you with the space and time and everything else that it takes to do it, and your responsibility is to do it. And if... if um, 
lightning doesn't strike or the choir doesn't sing until next year in March, then that's okay. I'm going to get up and do it every day. Um, and that, that that's tantamount to hitting off a tee underneath the stadium when nobody's watching so you keep your swing groove just in case something cool happens. Robert Benson is with us. Robert, now a step in time on the value of the literary stroll. What's that? <laughs> Writers, um, there's a tendency for people who are writing a book. Um, there's a tendency for writers. I, I spend most of my life in a room that's 10 by 10 with a stack of blank paper or sitting at a cafe table about three blocks from my house, which um, gives you a kind of distorted view of the world. And so if you actually want to meet human beings, you have to get up and walk around and you have to talk to them and you have to see people with their children and you have to go through the park and you have to stand in the art gallery. You have to get out and see people because it's easy for writers to get caught up in the notion that what they're doing is the most important thing on the planet and the truth of the matter is it isn't. It's just a book. It's not going to hurt anybody. It's not. <laughs> it's a book. And it's a lovely thing to do. I'm very honored to get to do them. But it's a book. Life is going all around you. And writers need to get up and get out of their chair and wander around the streets and realize most of the people there are not really interested in what they're writing anyway, which doesn't mean they shouldn't write it. It just means you have to have some perspective. So that's what I suggest. We've got 30 seconds to talk about one more topic, Robert. Okay. And uh, that topic is, very interestingly, and one that I want you to give us on to air, AIR, is human on sharing a work in progress. 30 seconds. Be very careful who you share your work with. Most people, even people who love you, their immediate response is to say, oh, that would be great if you would do, you could do better if you would do, oh, that would be great, don't you remember this part? And it will, it will stop your writing. Mm. dead in its track. So you have to be very careful about sharing it, and you have to be very careful about setting the boundaries for the people that you share it with. Otherwise, they'll shut you down. It's hard enough to write a book without being criticized before you've even had a chance to finish it. Robert, a million thanks. Great half hour. Wonderful. I enjoyed it. Thanks for including me, Pat. Dancing on the head of a pen. We've got more after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Evening Power Hour, AM 950 WTLN in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on the new 950 WTLN. You are cordially invited to the grand opening of Orchard Heights Gracious Retirement Living in Claremont this Sunday. Please join us for the festivities from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. with the official ribbon cutting at 1.30. Orchard Heights Gracious Retirement Living is set atop the hills of Claremont with a beautiful panoramic view of all of Central Florida to complement the first-class services they provide. Come see for yourself and experience a community where caring hearts and friendly smiles await you. Ah, welcome home. Orchard Heights Gracious Retirement Living's grand opening is this Sunday. Day from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. There will be entertainment, tours, and refreshments, salmon, salad, and a dessert extravaganza made from scratch by their own executive chefs. Orchard Heights Gracious Retirement Living, 3650 South Highway 27 in Claremont. For more information, go to SeniorLivingInStyle.com. That's SeniorLivingInStyle.com. Orchard Heights Gracious Retirement Living grand opening this Sunday. We'll see you there. If you're the mother of a child with behavior problems, I'd like to talk to you. My name is Janet Lehman. I'm a behavioral therapist and a mom. I know what it's like when the child you love becomes a defiant, out-of-control child who disrespects you. That's why my husband James and I created the Total Transformation, the program that tens of thousands of moms are now using to turn around their child's behavior. If you've heard about the Total Transformation and wondered if it will work for you, now you can try it for free. I'm willing to give away a 1,000 programs today for free. All you need to do is get the program and let us know how it works for you. We'll let you keep it for free. I know the Total Transformation works because I used these techniques with my own son and with troubled kids for over 30 years. Let me prove to you that it works by giving you the program for free. Call now, 1-800-241-0676. 1-800-241-0676. That's 1-800-241-0676. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 950 WTLN 
And now, here's Pat. Our guest in that first half hour, Robert Benson, author of Dancing on the Head of a Pen. Uh, Robert was in Nashville. We go to Dallas, and an old friend, John Tolson, joins us, founder of The Gathering at USA, a longtime uh, pastor, associate pastor at First Presbyterian in Orlando, and author of a new book called Take a Knee, Winning Plays for the Game of Life. John, welcome, and uh, welcome back to Orlando here. Thank you, Pat. Great to be with you. Talk about your time here in Orlando and uh, some of your memories. Well, you know, a lot of memories, uh, Pat. You know, I came there in 1983 with my family from Houston, and the primary uh, purpose for coming was to focus on leaders in the city uh, of Orlando. The Disney was at the 15th year mark, and there were a group of people there that really wanted to raise up a group of leaders so that in the years ahead, when there would be great growth in Central Florida and Orlando in particular, there would be a group of uh, folks that really were strong in their faith and able and uh, trained and equipped to make uh, great leaders in that city. So that was one of the, that was the mission we came to try to fulfill. But I also remember a phone call, Pat, I got one day from, from you. And you were calling me from Philadelphia. I think it was around 85, 1985. And you said, well, there's going to be some expansion in the NBA. Should it be in Tampa, St. Pete? Should it be in Jacksonville, Miami, or Orlando? Well, my response, if you remember, was, are you kidding me? It needs to be here in Orlando. <laughs> and, of course, we can talk further about that story. But I have a lot of fond memories there, I wonderful friends that I still keep up with. And so I could go on and on about that, Pat. What is your work in Dallas about? Yeah, my work in Dallas, we have three focuses. Uh, number one, we are very, very uh, passionate about doing what Jesus said in Matthew 28 when he said, go therefore into all the world and make disciples. And first of all, trying to help people understand what that means and then training and equipping not only people here in Dallas but all over the country to become what we call maturing reproducing disciples. So that's our first objective. Our second thing is to the book we're going to look at today, Take a Knee. We are especially focusing on fathers around the nation, praying that we can get this little book uh, to a million dads around the country who will take a knee at night with their children and go through this, believing that that could begin to make a gigantic difference in the lives of those kids and their daddies. And then the third objective that we have here in Dallas is to put together a plan to be able to present a winsome presentation of the gospel to every man in America in the next 10 years. Mm. So what's take a knee mean? Well, I'll tell you how it started, Pat. Um, when I was the chaplain for the Dallas Cowboys, um, we started something uh, that I don't think any other team in the NFL even to this day, does. And my very first time there, I, Greg Ellis, who was a former uh, linebacker with them, uh, I said, he said, would you come down here at the end of the locker room just before the game and, and pray with the whole team? I said, great. Would, can I say something other than just pray? He said, well, we've never done that, but go ahead and try it. Well, so what I ended up doing for the years that I was there, I'd get the whole team together, and they'd take a knee in a big circle, and trainers and coaches would be there as well. And I would step in the middle of the circle and do a two-minute, hopefully inspirational, in-your-face, kick-them-in-the-butt <laughs> little talk that hopefully would inspire them and get them ready to go out in the next three minutes to greet 100,000 people in AT&T Stadium as well as all over the world because it was obviously on television. Most Cowboy games are. So that was the idea behind it, take a knee and hopefully be inspired and encouraged uh, by the uh, little comments that I was going to make. So what is in your book, John? Well, in the book, and what I try to do, each, each week that I would speak, um, there was I didn't have like a, a thought-through list for the whole season of talks. It would go week by week in terms of what was going on with the team, the needs that I picked up on, and so forth. So what I tried to do was to pick out something that, relate, that would relate to them in the game, as well as in life, and then try to communicate that in two minutes. So one of my mentors, uh, Fred Smith, used to say that you know doing a 30-minute talk is relatively easy in preparing for as 
as compared to a two-minute talk. And, Pat, you do a lot of speaking all over the country, and you know that's true. If you only got two minutes, you got to be sharp, you got to be precise, you got to get with it. So what we're trying to do there is hit some of these different issues. Uh, of uh, We start out in the first one, finishing well, go down to talk about attitude, consistency, great expectations in not only the game but in life, et cetera, et cetera. So, again, it's just sowing season. If you know in the NFL they've got chapels, and that's a 30-minute session uh, on game day typically or the night before the game, Uh, and people that uh, come to those are the ones who want to come. There's no requirement to come. But in this deal that we did in the locker room, the whole team was there. So I had a shot at the whole team of planting some seeds about the faith, uh, about the Lord, as and some principles that can make a difference not only in the game, but also in their lives. It's laid out this book that John Tolson has put together, Take a Knee, with a 31-day approach. In other words, uh, one a month. Uh, I want you to get into some of these, John. I'll lay it out, and uh, sure. you tell us what we should learn here. Day one is finishing well. Uh, what are you teaching here? Well, I think uh, you know. I think it's very easy as a person grows older. You know, you always hear people say, "Well, finish well," uh, and and don't just kind of uh, drag yourself into the into the line, but finish well. And of course, the stories about this great runner from Tanzania that uh, was in the Olympics in 1968 in uh, Mexico City, and he fell down in the very beginning. Of the uh, of the event that he was running in, and but it, amazingly, he got back up. And even though he was obviously lagging behind everyone else, in fact, you can literally go online and see a video of this uh, runner. Uh, he finished the race. Hardly anybody was left in the stadium, but he finished the race. And he was asked at the end of it. He said, "Why in the world did you keep on going when you were so hurt?" And he said, "Well." My people in my country did not send me 11,000 kilometers away not to finish the race. And so the whole point is determination, finish what you start. And I know, Pat, you do a lot of writing and speaking with with parents about their children. Finishing things uh, at home is going to set the pattern for what you do in all your life, your work, your relationships, and everything else. So determination and finishing what you start and finishing well. Day two, the Invisible Man. Who is that? <laughs> well, uh, here's what we're talking about. We're talking about this is this is one of my favorite, not my favorite one. This is one of my favorite ones in the whole little book here of Take a Knee. Uh, the Invisible Man is talking about uh, what it means to be a servant. And I tell mm. the story here of a breakfast years ago in Washington D.C. Uh, of uh, a group of men that I did not understand at the time what was going on behind the events that was, were transpiring, but this was a gigantic meeting of, of leaders from literally all over the world, and what I discovered was there was one man who for years had plowed the ground in relationships, and not only in our nation's capital, but with leaders all over the world, and that uh, yet, if you ask people, uh, if I ask people in Dallas, do you know this man, and I mention his name, Doug Coe, people won't know who you're talking about. Yet Doug, in my estimation, is one of the most powerful men in the world of influence, especially with leaders. So the idea behind it is um, uh, the power of one, if I'm willing to cultivate relationships and to keep at it, and to allow the Lord to work through me uh, behind the scenes, the invisible man. Dr. John Tolson is our guest. Uh, His book is out, Take a Knee, Winning Plays for the Game of Life. John, I think this would be a good chance right now to talk about leadership. Um, Where do leaders come from? Can leaders be taught? Uh, what, What have you learned about leadership? What does it take to be a good leader? Well, you know, I think it's that's a great question, Pat. And, I, and again, I want to say I appreciate all that you have uh, written and talked about on leadership, and I study that frequently. Um, I think that it starts with not so much uh, what I do, but who I am. And I think, I, I mean, I, there are a lot of characteristics of leaders, and, and we can get into that. 
at some other point. But I think the key is becoming the person, first of all, that, that the Lord wants me to be. For example, I, I think of, uh, I think of uh, Jesus and how he did it. And so you've got, um, you've got Matthew 28 where he says, go into all the world, make disciples. But if you back up a little bit, in Matthew 25, he tells his disciples, when I leave and go back and return to the Father, all hell's going to break loose. So my question is, what did he do when he gave that assignment to go into all the world and make disciples, and then knowing when he left, he said, but all hell's going to break loose. So what did he do with his disciples those three years so that when um, he left and all hell broke loose, they didn't fold up like an accordion? Go back to Matthew 5. If you go to 5, 6, and 7, chapters 5, 6, and 7, you see his training plan. And just to begin, for example, Matthew 5, we know this is the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. Just do one or two of them. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Well off to be envied, to be congratulated, are those who are willing to admit their spiritual bankruptcy before a holy God, not only initially, but continually. Let's do another one. This, this is one of my favorite. Blessed are the meek. So when I speak to the Dallas Cowboy players about being meek, and I've got a 300-pounder right in front of me, a big lineman, they almost chuckle. But then if you define it, here's what it means. The meek man, number one, is a man that's teachable. He doesn't come across arrogant like he knows everything, but like, like you always say, Pat, leaders are readers and readers are leaders. He's always learning. And secondly, meek means a person that's under God's control. And so to me, one of the key principles and leadership is to focus on the man or the woman that I'm becoming in Christ. Yeah, that's great. That's great. All right, here is day three, John. The rule of anyway. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, let me turn over there real fast, Pat, so I'm, stay, I'm trying to stay up with you here. There we go. Um, well, I think that uh, this one is... Uh, a powerful, powerful concept in that so often we do uh, things for other people. We do what the Lord wants us to do if it's convenient, if we're not getting any resistance, uh, and if, if, if the road is easy ahead of us. But what this is trying to get over is that I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do in the hearts and lives of other people to serve, to give myself away, etc., no matter what the opposition is. For example, you see here, people are unreasonable, illogical, and self-centered, love them anyway. And, you know, just taking that one alone, Jesus says love, that we're to love not only those that are easy to love, but we're to love those that drive us up the wall. We're, we're to love those that are opposed to us. And, of course, the key here is understanding what the word love means. And as you so uh, well, I, I'm Pat, I, I quote you all the time, Pat, but there are five Greek words in the Scripture in the New Testament for the one English word, love, but four out of the five had nothing to do with, uh, with uh, feelings. Mm -hmm. It has to do with action. Mm. And the best definition I've ever heard of love in my life is this, that love is constructive behavior. Mm. What that means is doing what's best for the other person, regardless of how you feel towards the person at any given moment. And so if I, if I live that way in... in in relationships with people, that is revolutionary. And, of course, the Lord gives me the capacity and the capability to be able to do that. So that's what this whole chapter is about. John Tolson. Dr. John Tolson is with us from Dallas. We've got another segment with John. And uh, just a reminder, John, how do people reach you? Well, they would. Uh, our website is uh, John and Punky, that's my wife, P-U-N-K-Y, Tolson, T-O-L-S-O-N, dot com. Here in Dallas, that's our website, and we'd love to hear from you. And the email address is john yeah. at johnandpunkytolson.com. You got it. That's john it. at johnandpunkytolson.com. More with John Tolson right after these messages on the Pat Williams Saturday Evening Power Hour, AM 950 WTLN in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on the new 950 WTLN. A conversation with Gracie Miller, candidate for Seminole School Board District 2. 
Why are you seeking to serve the citizens and, and the children of Seminole County on the Seminole County School Board? I've been serving children for 35 years, most of that in Seminole County. And I've always been concerned about quality of life, quality of potential future for children in our communities and their families. And so it's the extension for me of the service that I've been about all of my life. Here I am in the race, trying to position myself to continue to make a difference in the lives of, of young people and in the life of our nation. What are some things that you would like to see that might be different with Seminole County Schools if you were to be elected? Engaging parents on a deeper level and a wider level is, is probably the thing I'm most passionate about. It's about service. It's about children. It's about their future. It's about giving hope. Elect Gracia M. Miller, August 26th, to be the voice of the voiceless. Paid for by the campaign to elect Gracia M. Miller to the Seminole County School Board, District 2. Tired tile? There is no excuse. So let's go to the Home Depot where the latest tile trends all live under one roof. Medallions, metallics, stacked stone, and more. Like Marazzi Montagna Woodlook Tile in three new colors, starting at just $239 a square foot. Let's get the latest looks without plastering our budget. Let's do this with the latest tile, like Montagna Woodlook, starting at $239 a square foot. More saving, more doing. That's the power of the Home Depot. Price may vary, U.S. only. See store for details. When your Ford needs service, who can you trust more than your Ford dealer? Your dealer's factory trained techs are Ford experts and use Motorcraft parts and motor oil. Right now, get up to $50 in mail-in rebates on any Motorcraft brake service when you use the Ford service credit card. And because Motorcraft is backed by Ford, you know you'll get the right parts for your vehicle. Subject to credit approval. Taxes extra. Rebates by prepaid debit card. Pads or shoes on most vehicles. One accent. Exclusions apply. See your participating Ford dealer for rebate details through 831 You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 950 WTLN. And now, here's Pat. Dr. John Tolson is with us. We're talking about his new book, Taking a Knee, Take a Knee Winning Plays for the Game of Life. John, before we get back into the book, tell me what it's like to live in Dallas, Texas. <laughs> it's crazy. I'm looking out my window uh, right now in Dallas, and we are. I'm very close to the very heart of downtown, so I'm seeing all the skyscrapers. And uh, I'm looking over to my right, which I can see uh, in the view about uh, 10 miles away, the top of AT&T Stadium where the Cowboys play. And then I'm looking on the other side of this building here, and I see where the Dallas Mavericks play. This is an amazing place around here. Um, the city is, is bustling. I'm looking down at Turtle Creek, and there's all kinds of uh, uh, construction going on around here. This city has, is just booming. Great opportunity. And great churches in that area, right? Yes, sir. The great, some of the greatest churches, I think, in the country. You bet. How do you compare Dallas, Texas, to Houston, Texas? Well, I think there's a little bit different uh, mentality. I think in, in Houston, you've kind of got the... Uh, idea of a maverick. Uh, this is somebody that's a risk taker. They just they see an opportunity, boom, they're gone. In Dallas, they're a little more reserved, thinking through a little bit more. So on the business side, that's one difference. The other difference in terms of the environment is it's very humid down there. They get the heat, but they also, like you do in Orlando, they get the humidity. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you're closer to the, the Gulf. And uh, geographically, it's a little bit different. Big oil company, a country down there. Uh, but another great city with a lot of great churches. I've got a lot of friends in Houston. On day four, John, you tell us winning with class. Mm-hmm. How, how do you do that? Well, I think that the idea behind this one um, is that it, we're talking about here about humility. And I think often we look at humility as a... Uh, as a weakness, but really humility, especially if you look at the Scripture, is uh, defined as a strength. Uh, and it kind of goes back to the meek thing, too. Uh, to not to be constantly patting myself on the backpack, there's a proverb that says, if you're going to boast, let somebody else boast for you. Uh, don't be your own PR agent. So I think that's the idea behind this, that, uh, that there's a great humility with great people. I hope we get to Chapter 9, because I want to talk about that one before we close up here, Pat. Well, let's do it right now. Let's do it right now. All right. There were two, uh, there were two uh, as I remember, um, West Coast teams playing a number of years ago before about 100,000 people, and there's like a minute and a half to go, and the, 
The home team's behind by about four or five points, and they're driving, uh, and they're about on the 40-yard line, and the coach keeps yelling from the sidelines with the veins popping out of his neck, give Leroy the ball, give Leroy the ball. Quarterback runs the play, doesn't give Leroy the ball. He's keep yelling. He's pacing up and down the sideline. Give Leroy, give Leroy the ball. He doesn't give Leroy the ball. He calls a timeout. The quarterback comes over. He said, why didn't you give Leroy the ball? He said, coach, Leroy said he don't want the ball. <laughs> the point behind that is got to be men and women who follow Christ that are willing to take the responsibility, take the ball, and run the plays wherever we are in whatever arena of life, whether it's in our family, with our friends, in our work, wherever it is. We've got to be willing and eager to take the ball. Then uh, the next one uh, that I want you to talk about is number 10, make the most of now. And uh, Tim Tebow is featured here in this one. Uh, yes, sir. Well, I think this one, again, making the most of now, we're looking at um, trying to be able, to, as the title says, um, being able to take advantage of the moment you're in at that moment. And Tim, if you know anything about his history, had great opportunity uh, uh, in, in when he was in the college ranks. And uh, he um, had opportunities not only to continue to play football, at least for a while, but also to try to figure out the best way that he could make a difference uh, the hearts and lives of people as he was continuing to play, especially in the college ranks. And so he came up with a way to be able to uh, communicate his faith in a very unique way. And I think, again, not everybody could maybe do it the way Tim did it, but as he would put those scriptures uh, uh, visible, visible to the screen and the people in the stands to make a statement about his love for Christ. And again, I think it's a fine line, Pat, you walk in my own estimation. I think sometimes that uh, we've got to be very careful about making sure that we're living the life before we proclaim the verses and the, 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 the basic principles of the faith. But I think Tim did that very well. He lived uh, what he communicated verbally, and what a great model he was as he made a difference and continues to make a difference. What does Roger Staubach mean to the city of Dallas? Well, my goodness. You know, it's interesting, Pat. If you go to... A, a, a meeting in Dallas where there's a luncheon or whatever, even if Roger's not speaking, if he is just in the crowd at a table, people are lined up to just not only just get a look at him, but maybe to say hello, to get an autograph, to just listen to him speak. It, I, I don't even know how you describe the influence of this man in this city to this day. It is absolutely phenomenal. I want you to talk in our closing minutes here. Uh, day 30, John, day 30, a man's got to know his limitations. Uh, Robin Parkhouse is in this story. Uh, Bear Bryant is in this story. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to hear this. Well, um, Robin Parkhouse was, uh, when I lived in Orlando, my next-door neighbor. And Robin Parkhouse... Uh, Coach Bryant said it was probably one of the toughest linemen that ever played with him. And um, I think Robin, I observed Robin for 20 years, being his next-door neighbor. Um, and Robin was a man that went through some challenges in his life after he got out of college. He had some rough edges, and if he uh, were on your show today, he'd be very transparent and tell you about that. But anyway, Robin, uh, through his uh, relationship with Coach Bryant, and through his uh, encountering a living relationship with Jesus Christ, uh, began to uh, see a whole different uh, course of life for him. And it was amazing to me to watch Robin, uh, knowing his background, knowing that he had spent some time behind bars, what the Lord did to uh, uh, tr literally transform his life. And again, I would say to all your listeners out there, that's the message that we're all about, that there's hope no matter what our past. Uh, there's a new start waiting for you at this very moment uh, as you take a knee before Jesus Christ, and he begins to transform you. What are the next 10 years of your life going to be like, John? Well, they're, hopefully, by God's grace, they're going to be filled with uh, opportunity to fulfill those three uh, missions that we have that I mentioned earlier in the program. Disciple-making all over the country, 
uh, take a knee with hopefully millions of fathers uh, impacting their children and getting a winsome presentation of the gospel to every man in America. Thank God for my health. Thank God for my friends like you, my wonderful wife, and an opportunity to get up again today and get after it. What does discipleship mean? Well, discipleship, uh, Pat, uh, I wish I could somehow get this over in a way that everybody's just, my goodness, this is it. Jesus' last words before he left the planet was to go make disciples. If you look the 269 times up in the Bible that the word disciple is mentioned, and throw them in a funnel, out of the bottom of the funnel drops three things that it means. The disciple, first of all, is a learner. Number two, a disciple is a follower. And number three, and this is the part that we miss, a disciple is a reproducer. And so disciple-making is talking about intentionally putting your arm around another person, a man for a man and a woman for a woman, or a couple with a couple, and walking with them and building a, a foundation of faith that not only that person can live by but can replicate in the life of another. I've got seven guys I meet with every week one-on-one. These are all young guys from 28 to 35. And when, I sign, when they sign up to meet with me, the expectation is when we're finished with our year together, you have got to commit on the front end that you will take one or two guys a year and go through our little routine, which is our book we wrote called The Four Priorities, that you will go through with that with one or two a year, and you will only pick people that will make that same commitment, and you will do that for the rest of your life. John Tolson has been our guest. We've got a wrap-up after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Evening Power Hour at AM 950 WTLN. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on the new 950 WTLN. The results described should not be considered as guarantees of your actual earnings or profits. Results not typical. Check terms and conditions for income disclosures. How would you like to work from home, be your own boss, and make great money working online on your own time? These people saw the opportunity and took it. Working online changed my life. I was able to get out of my high-pressure corporate job. It all started with HomeIncomeOnline.com. I love that I'm able to spend more time with my kids while making over $10,000 per month. Go to HomeIncomeOnline.com today and enter special code 1919 to learn about a multi-billion dollar industry that's just waiting for you to tap into its incredible earning potential. Full and part-time opportunities are currently available. I just graduated college, and I'm making more money than I ever imagined. Are you ready to start making real money working online from home? Just go to HomeIncomeOnline.com now and enter special code 1919 to get your risk-free information kit. That's www.HomeIncomeOnline.com, special code 1919. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour. On the new 950 WTLN. And now, here's Pat. Thanks so much for joining us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Evening Power Hour. Uh, We've had a very interesting half hour. Robert Benson from Nashville uh, talking about dancing on the head of a pen. Some good advice if you want to write a book. And then Dr. John Tolson, who spent many years here in Orlando. Uh, from Dallas, Texas, talking about his book, a devotional book called Take a Knee. And so glad that uh, John could join us. Please visit my website. It is patwilliams.com, the Twitter page, Orlando Magic Pat. And my latest book is out. It's called Triumph, a whole series of sports stories. I think you'll enjoy it. It's in bookstores now, up on Amazon.com as well. And uh, that's the latest from my my work. Okay, folks, have a wonderful day tomorrow uh, with your family in church and uh, a great week ahead here in Central Florida. We're back next weekend for more on the Pat Williams Saturday Evening Power Hour. You are listening to AM 950 WTLN. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the Pat Williams Power Hour. Join us again next week at this same time on the intersection of faith and reason. The new 950 WTLN. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.